0: Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on that's Wipfandstock.com, that's wipf stock.com as well as Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. First Samuel chapter 19, and let's start in verse 11. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window and he went out and fled and escaped. And then skip down to verse 18. Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him and all that Saul had done to him. Okay, so. Uh, Flip over to Psalm chapter 59, and we'll see in the title here that this is a psalm that David wrote during this time. Psalm chapter 59, when Saul had sent men to his house to try to kill him. And we mentioned it very briefly last week, that there is a right time and place to even pray uh, against your enemies. Uh, So we're going to kind of go more in depth in that this morning, because it shows up a lot in the psalms, but for many reasons it can be very uncomfortable to us. And I would say, uh, as we go through this, just just think about, who is it in your life that at least feels the most like an enemy right now? Now, sometimes we can tend to be very pious people, right? You say, well, I'm just so much like Jesus, I don't have any enemies. Uh, but Jesus had enemies, okay? It, it's not sinful to say, at least, these people feel like enemies to me at times, and sometimes they might even be people in your own family, all right? So I'm not going to ask you to share, uh, just be honest with yourself. But let's look at how David deals with situations like this. So uh, Psalm chapter 59, and the first point would be deliver me. Let's look at just the first uh, four verses here. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. So this is a very basic, normal prayer. And so many of David's prayers start out like this. There's a problem. I'm distressed. I'm kind of desperate. I feel overwhelmed. I need help. I can't handle it on my own. He's looking to the Lord and begging God, protect me, take care of me. Verse 2, deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. So he's saying these guys are sinners, now he's not saying I'm not a sinner. We'll talk more about this in just a second. But he's saying these guys are basically cold-blooded murderers. They were sent to my house to murder me. I had to sneak away to get away. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not, certainly not doing what they've accused me of. Verse 3, for behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgressions, nor for my sin, O oh Lord. Now, again, we probably most of us don't have people camping outside of our bedroom waiting to, you know, ambush us with spears when we wake up in the morning. But you might have somebody at your office that you feel like with their slanderous words is always coming against you, right? Which Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that to call somebody a fool in anger is just baby murder in the heart, right? So we deal with similar things, although maybe not in the same extreme, and we need to know how to pray about it. Verse 4, For no guilt of mine they run and set themselves against me, Arouse yourself to help me and see. Now, is there anything about verse four that might bother? I mean, verses three and four that might bother us at first glance when we're kind of reading through this, especially if we're trying to put it in our own words and pray it back to God. This will be the class participation part. You can speak up if you want to. Okay, we can all probably think of a lot of sins that we actually do. And there, again, this is a theme that comes out in many of the psalms and a lot of David's psalms. Is When he's praying a lot of times, he's kind of declaring his own innocence. And that can bother us. But he, he's not saying he is sinlessly perfect. Okay? Let, me, let me try to give an illustration that I think will help us. Let's, let's imagine that we all took a vote in this class. And we were like, oh, of everybody in the class, who do we think is like the most humble, godly person in the whole class, okay? And just, Dave, you're sitting close to me, so you won the vote, okay? We all said, <laughs> Dave Giddens, out of this class, he's the most humble, all right? And right after we've taken that vote, we think Dave's the most humble. Somebody runs through the back door and says, I accuse Dave of being involved in a plot to assassinate the president of the United States. And Dave says, no way, I didn't do that, I'm not involved. I don't think any of us would turn and say, well, I used to think Dave was humble, but now I really think he's arrogant. (laughs) Do you see see how much Dave is over there talking about how innocent he is? (laughs) What he's doing is he's saying, in this one specific thing that I'm being charged of, I'm totally innocent. David was being accused by Saul and his henchmen of trying to take the throne, of trying to rebel, of being a usurper. And David's saying, there's not an ounce of truth in it. I've been submissive. I've been loyal. There's a right way to come before God and say, in this specific thing that I'm being falsely accused, Father, as best as I know my own heart, I'm innocent. It's not true. That's a good way to pray. Because, listen, we all have a desire to be vindicated, don't we, when we're falsely accused? It doesn't roll off our backs so easily. And the closer the person is to us, we mentioned this last week, right? If it's the random homeless person downtown, maybe it doesn't stick too hard. But it's one of your kids or maybe even your spouse, hypothetically, who's falsely accusing you, you really want to be vindicated, right? But if you get into the debate trying to vindicate yourself, how does that one tend to go for you? Usually not well. I mean, that's really hard to get into a debate with somebody trying to legitimately stay humble and holy, but at the exact same time trying to vindicate your innocence in this specific incident. It usually doesn't work well. So what's a much better strategy? Go, God, you're the judge of all the earth. Please vindicate me. Please do the part for me that I can't do for myself. Okay. So just ask yourself this, guys. When when you're experiencing hardship, maybe when you're experiencing slander or false accusation or pressure or feeling overwhelmed or confused... Again, don't, don't just give the Sunday school answer. Legitimately, where do you run first? Do you go to a friend or a spouse, maybe just to vent or complain? That's not always wrong, but that could be a bad pattern if that's always your first run. Do you run to your own ingenuity to try to figure out how am I going to fix that? That usually doesn't work out very well. Or is, is legitimately the first place that you run, I run to the Lord in prayer? That's my pattern. I beg God, fight for me, do the work that I can't do. And the sense is God is listening. So the first part of the prayer, Lord, deliver me. But then he's going to move into a section of the prayer that's really the meat of the prayer, which really the theme is destroy them. And this is where it can bother us a little bit. But let's start in verse 5. You, O Lord, God of hosts, and that means you're a God of an army, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. That can really bother us for multiple reasons. But just notice what he says there in the middle, awake to punish all the nations. Have you not ever felt like you're going through something really hard? And again, you have all the right theology, but at a feeling level, it feels like God's asleep. I mean, I was, I was talking to a good friend yesterday that's going through a couple of really hard things. And this person is very godly and very mature, but they said to me, I feel alone in this situation. And they have other human beings trying to help them in this situation, but I understood what they meant. They said, and again, they got great theology, but they said, right now, in this situation, I feel like God has abandoned me. I know he hasn't, and, and I haven't always been this smart, but, you know, 24 years of marriage will help you with this kind of stuff. I knew that it was not the time for me to say, well, technically, of course, God's always, but, right? She's like, just shut up and Listen. I feel abandoned. We oftentimes feel that way. What do you do with those feelings? It's not sinful and wrong to pour them out to the Lord and say, Lord, hey, I feel like you're asleep on the watch here. What happened? I need help. I don't want to have just good pristine theology. I want to have an actual practical experience of you showing up and changing the situation. That's what David's (coughs) praying. Verse 6, they return at evening, they howl like a dog. I mean, most people back then didn't have dogs for pets. To call somebody a dog wasn't, like, sweet and affectionate. I mean, they were these mangy animals that went around and prowled and attacked people. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? So basically, they're saying, we can do whatever we want. We work for King Saul. We've got power. We can get away with this. Nobody's going to hold us to account. But look at what David says next, verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. And he said, probably David wrote Psalm chapter 2, and he says something very similar there. Guys, part of what's so good about focused prayer, focused meditation, is it gets the eyes of our heart off of ourselves, off of our situation, and it gets it back, the eyes of our heart, back onto the Lord on his throne. Right? I can't literally see him, but by meditation... By faith, I, can, I ought to be able, in a sense, see his power, see his sovereignty, see his goodness, see his wisdom. And the more, in a sense, I stare at his confidence, the more his confidence can become mine. Does that make sense? Okay. Let, me, let me give you a story. Years ago, uh, this, how many of you have ever had the joy of going on you know, a fifth grade Washington, D.C. trip with one of your children or whatever grade, right? Okay. And, you know... Love elementary school teachers. My wife used to be one, okay. But I feel like they put so much pressure on these little kids, right, to make this scrap. They almost feel guilty, like the kids are getting a free vacation from the school. And so we're going to put so much pressure on them to, like, build this scrapbook, okay. Uh, And so the little kids are taking all their pictures, especially when Dad's there, because I'm not taking pictures, right. So I hope you're taking the pictures, buddy, and and getting all the brochures. And we had done the whole Washington, D.C. trip, and the last day, we're at the last museum. We get on the bus, and we're we're pulling away, kind of end of the day. It's a six-bus caravan, and my little fifth-grade son comes up to me and says, Dad, I accidentally took my backpack off that has everything I've been collecting all week, my camera, you know, all the pictures, all the brochures, everything. I left it, and he's starting to panic, right, cry. And, and I'm an older adult man, and I realized that as we were walking out, they were shutting the door and locking the, the museum was closed for the night. I also realized we're in a six-bus caravan. There's no way they're turning around. And so I said, hey, buddy, don't worry about it. We'll we'll figure it out tomorrow. How do you think that went over? (laughs) Not very well. That just increased his panic because what he felt like is dad doesn't care. Dad's not getting involved. Dad's not helping me. Aren't there many times we're praying about something and God's not doing anything lickety split like we'd like him to? And what do we feel? My heavenly father doesn't care. My heavenly father's not acting. So he kind of turned up the tears and the panicking. And and I don't think like in an emotionally manipulative way. I think it was the real expression of his soul. So what I did is I literally got down on my knees in the little aisle of the bus and I looked him in the eyes, kind of got face to face, and I said, Listen, buddy, the museum's shut, six buses, no way we're turning around, but I'll handle this. I said, If I have to wake up early and get an Uber and go back in the morning again, I said, I promise I'll handle it. And once he kind of saw my confidence, do you know what happened? It's like he got the confidence by osmosis. But how did that happen? Getting eyeball to eyeball, listening, focusing. And what brought me to be willing to kind of get down on my knees and speak to him like that was his panicked tears. That's a lot of what a great prayer and meditation life ought to be. God, I'm struggling out here, but I'm going to pray and wrestle until I feel like, metaphorically, you get down on your knees and you speak to me, right? I'm not expecting some new revelation, but would you take the old revelation and make it new, make it personal, make it fresh, make it experientially, where I feel like the Holy Spirit is taking the words off the page and personalizing them to me so that I can have your confidence in my soul. You ever had that experience happen? It's life transformative, is it not? And the more we can have experiences like that on an every single day basis, the more we start to slowly but surely become like Jesus. Okay. Take the time to go deep in your study, in your prayer, in your meditation. Did you find the backpack? We did find the backpack, yes. Thank you. For, uh, yes, we found the backpack. He got an A-plus on the uh, scrapbook, okay? <laughs> With with none of Dad's help, okay. So all you moms on your first child, and you're trying to get the perfect scrapbook, you don't have to be involved, okay. Let the fifth grader do it on their own, and they'll be fine. All right. Uh, Free parents and tips. They don't do scrapbook. Yeah. Okay. Well, all the better. And I hate that I had to suffer through it. All right. Verse nine. Because of his strength, I will watch for you. So probably he's saying, because of the strength of my enemies, they're stronger than me. I'm one man. I got an old prophet on my team. He's got a whole army. I'm going to watch for you, God. I'm going to wait for you. God's my stronghold. I'm not going to go try to find some tower I can hide in. I'm going to hide in you, God. I'm going to hope in you. My God and his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do you see what's happening in verse 10? We're about halfway through the psalm. And as he's prayed, as he's persevered, as he's poured out his heart, as he's cried, as he's meditated, he starts to say, I know you're going to win. What we're talking about has happened. God's confidence has become David's confidence. He's like, I know in the end I'm going to win. I'm going to triumph. Now, look look at his prayer switches a little bit. In a sense, it gets a little bit more bold. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down. You see what he's saying there? Again, we really may not be comfortable with this one. At first, he's just like, hey, these people are trying to kill me. You kill them, God. And then it's like he gets so confident. He's like, wait a second. You know what? Don't kill them quick. Drag it out. Make a spectacle of them. Now, you may say, that sounds kind of sick. But notice his motive. Why? So other people like me that are struggling, being oppressed by these people, they can have hope. They can have confidence. Side note, but, but another, thing you, another theme you see come out in the Psalms and it's so important in our prayer life is most of the time when you're wrestling with God, I want a deeper experience. I want to grow. Part of what ought to often happen, because you're, again, what's happening? Part of what happens in good prayer and meditation is God's heart is becoming yours. His heart is for the nations. His heart is for all his people. So you start to say, God, I just don't want to experience your glory, your magnificence in this way. I want all of your people to experience it. So David's kind of, in the sense, spreading out the love. I want all your people to see your glory. Verse 12. On account of their sin, of their mouth, and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride, and on account of curses and lies which they utter, destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. So God, ultimately, why do I want you to have wrath on the wicked? So you get glory. Verse 14, they return at evening, they howl like a dog and go around the city, and they wander about for food and growl if they are not satisfied. So he's starting to realize, you know, these guys have been chasing me for a while. Saul's been trying to kill me for a while. He hadn't gotten what he wants. Even with all his human power, they're not satisfied. And that's a good thing to remember. When we feel like the wicked in the world are succeeding and winning, and we feel like we're losing the cultural wars or whatever, it's like they're really not that happy they're really miserable. They're really not getting what they want. And we may be suffering in the short term, but in the long term, we're triumphant. We win. We get true eternal satisfaction and joy. Okay. Um, so, again, I realize that this can be very uncomfortable for us praying this way. So, uh, let me just, let me pause here for a second. Why do we have such a hard time praying these types of prayers? What is it about these type of prayers, these imprecatory psalms, okay, these (coughs) cursings, basically, that we have such a hard time praying? Jesus told us to pray for our enemies. Okay, Jesus told us to pray for our enemies, okay, and so this seems to contradict that. Very good. Any other thoughts like that? You know, St. Augustine years ago said, and, and other people have quoted him since then, that basically all the Old Testament is is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And the point is, all the doctrines really the same. Things are just a lot more clear in the New Testament. So, at first glance, this is one place where it does seem like there's a contradiction between Old and New Testament. Right? I and mean, I think we all feel that and see that. But just think about this. Don't even flip there for the sake of time, but write it down. You go check me so you believe I'm not lying to you. Okay? This is First Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. Paul's writing, he says, Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will not be taught to blaspheme. I don't know what you want to call that, but it sounds like a curse to me. (laughs) Do you remember Jesus in teaching on prayer in Luke chapter 18, and he uses a parable? And the whole story with the parable is there's a little old lady coming to a judge... And what was the little old lady saying to the judge? Does anybody remember her words? You don't have to quote them exactly. But what was the theme of what the little old lady was saying to the judge? Give me justice, Give me justice against my enemies. And Jesus says, this is a bad old testament. No, he doesn't say that. He says, that's a good way to pray. Persevere. praying for justice against your enemies. Now, he said, but Jesus did say, pray for your enemies. So, how is it right to pray this way? How does it fit with New Testament theology? Okay, at least five ways. Okay, I mentioned one of them last week. The first one is this. It's the best for me. It's the best for me. These type of prayers are the best prevention of vigilante justice. I'm not going to take matters in my own hands, right? How was David so often able to let King Saul escape when he could have easily killed him because he was saying, I'm praying for God to do the dirty work, so to speak. Because I trust God to do it in the right time, the right way. I don't trust myself. It's best for me to say, God, there are real bad people on planet Earth, and some of them need to get wrath. Exactly when, exactly how, I, that's above my pay grade, Father. So you take care of it. It's the best thing for us. Okay? The second thing, it's the best thing for other people. Right? If there's some, let's just say you have some horrendous boss. Some narcissist who's just abusive, who's mean, takes advantage, steals money from you know clients and other people and all that, but he's taking money out of your pocket as well. And you start praying, Hey, God, I want this guy to be gone, to be fired, to be exposed. That won't just be a blessing to you if he gets fired and exposed. It'll be a blessing to all these clients he's taking advantage of. Does that make sense? Look, let me give you a real practical example. This may be an extreme one, but... Uh, I think we're all the right age and stage to kind of remember this one there was about 10 years straight that not every day but probably on a weekly basis i prayed for osama bin laden and you know what i prayed for him it was a very short prayer but it was it here he was i'll tell you almost verbatim when i pray about once a week okay he didn't he wasn't on my daily prayer list he was on my weekly prayer list god would you save osama bin laden wouldn't that be amazing i mean that'd be like Tarsus times two But Lord, if you're not going to save him, would you put a cruise missile in his cave? (laughs) Because he's such an evil, wicked person who has hurt so many people and plans to continue to do it. Either save him or kill him. Um, Now the third thing. Keep your finger in Psalm 59, but flip over to Psalm chapter 83. I I think we, we want to see this one together. Psalm chapter 83. Why should we pray this way? How is it right, even in the New Testament, pray this way? Number one, it's best for me. Number two, it's best for others. The third point, it's best for the person I'm praying for. You may say, whoa, whoa, how do you get that? Look at Psalm 83. I'm not going to look at the whole thing. Skip down to verse 16. Fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. Let them be humiliated and perish that they may know that you alone whose name is the Lord are the most high over all the earth. I wonder how many of us have a testimony that something really hard and tragic had to happen in our life. We had to reap some of the consequences of our sin before we got broken and we really repented. I bet we all have friends like that, right? that when they tell their testimony, they went through something really horrendous, like it ended in jail. And then, in the depths of despair, they got saved. So, sometimes God bringing some temporary wrath and punishment on something is what it takes to drive somebody towards salvation. Okay. Imagine that you've got a, way for, a wayward child. <laughs> best friend, family member, or something. And you're praying for them. And maybe a thought goes through your mind like this. Well, God saved the prodigal son, right? I mean, you ever thought about that? I mean, this person's out there partying their brains out. They're so rebellious. They're so wicked. They're denying God. But God can save him because God saved the prodigal son. But do you remember what had to happen to the prodigal son before he got saved? He had to go to the bottom of the pigsty in all the mud in a famine and almost starved to death. And you, know, you remember what it says then? It says, he came to his senses. Now, I've got some loved ones in my life really close to me. And as I meditate on Luke 15 about this person, in one sense, it's really encouraging. <laughs> like, there's hope for anybody. But there's also, like, God, I don't want him to have to go to the pigsty before he repents. But... If it's going to take pigsty to get repentance, I will happily take the pigsty, won't you? So my prayer becomes, hey, God, you do whatever it takes to save him, even if you have to almost ruin his life in the process. I'd rather him get eternal salvation than miss that. It's actually best to pray this way for the wicked. The fourth, okay, it's really best for all people. And what do I mean by that? Let me just, I want to show hands on this one, okay? Have you ever, either out loud, in your own heart, even just once in your life, prayed some form of this prayer? Like, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Anybody ever prayed anything like that? Then guess what, guys? Whether you know it or not, you've prayed this way. Because when you're asking the Lord Jesus to come back, when Jesus comes back, there's two main things that are going to happen. All the elect, instantly into glory. All the unelect, eternal damnation. It's pretty sobering. But guys, at some level, David's just more realistic and honest about what he's praying. We, we like the G version of the prayer. I don't want to get too involved in the details, God. And David's like, no, no, no. I was reading a commentator the other day that said in some sense, being invited to pray is kind of like God is the President of the United States saying, come be involved in my cabinet. I want you to talk to me about what you think I should do. That's what prayer is at some level. It's insane. It almost seems blasphemous to say that. But there's some of us kind of like, I don't know if I want to get too involved in the details, God. And David's like, I'll get involved. I'll sit at your table. And he's president. We're just a little prayer person. Okay. The last thing is this, and I think we all realize this, it's best for God's glory. And guys, that's got to be the deepest driving thing. At the end of the day, God, I don't want just my vindication. I don't want just my comfort. I don't want to just get out of this painful process. I want you to get glory. And it looks like on planet Earth you're not getting glory. So... Five reasons why we should pray that way. Um, and again, if you're still having a real problem with this, let me, let me just kind of give you two kind of caveats. One thing, if you're like, I still don't like it, I still don't get it, I'm not doing it. Okay. When you come to these things, just pray against Satan and all his demons. Right? You can pray wrath for them without problems, I hope. Right? Just, just pray, God, stop the works of Satan in the world. That's one good way. Or, and this is the way that I try to process it personally, whenever you're praying against somebody... Always pray, God. What I mainly want for that person, I want them to stop sinning. Right? That's what we should want for everybody. I want that for me. I want that for everybody. I want to stop sinning. I want to sin less. And the best way to stop sinning is through repentance. Right? Repentance, grace, mercy, forgiveness, sanctification. That would be option number one. But if it's not going to happen through repentance, then let it happen through some other means. That's how much we should hate sin. The key is, do you hate your own sin more than you hate other people's sin? Right? If you can get really fired up about other people's sin, and just side note, average conservative evangelical in America really now, right now, we can get all kinds of angry about all the sin out there, right? My sin, Ah, it's kind of like white-collar domesticated sin. Does it even count? I don't think that's the biblical perspective. Is it right to hate the sin in others? Yes. The way that you make sure you don't turn into a self-righteous, arrogant, legalistic Pharisee is you make sure you hate your own sin more than you hate other people's. That's what keeps you humble. So, the third point in the psalm is delight in me. It's just the last two verses. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. I said this before. That's Say it true. again. Preach the gospel yourself. Also, just preach your own history. Remind yourself of past times of struggle and hardship and seeming persecution where the Lord delivered you. So many of David's psalms start out like this: "Help! Wake up! Where are you? It's going really bad down here." And within 16 verses, he's at the end. He's like, "I feel like I'm having a party." Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. God's on his throne still. I just had to remind myself. I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with love. Verse 17. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. And you see that word there, loving kindness, show up twice in those last verses. And that's the Old Testament word for kind of God's covenant love, God's saving love, God's choosing love. Um, now, we talked about how it's right to pray this way. Let me, let me warn us a little bit. How's it wrong to pray this way? Because obviously there are ways that you could abuse these imprecatory songs. And the first thing would be this. If you ever, if there's just a sense of, I'm going to get pleasure out of this. their pain, right? They hurt me, and I'm not going to hurt them back, God, but I really want you to hurt them, and I'm going to kind of enjoy it when you do. That's bad bad you shouldn't do that okay it should be i mean when jesus looked over the city of jerusalem and realized you guys rejected me and wrath is coming how did he respond he wept right when we pray for our so-called enemies in the culture war there shouldn't be a yeah they are gonna get what they deserve one day there ought to be a weeping. They probably are going to get what they deserve one day. And it's terrifying. And God, if you just let me be a part of maybe getting one or two of them out of that, I'd be honored. So it's got to be covered in grace. It's got to be covered in mercy. And the second thing would be this. Any time you pray, and I've already kind of mentioned this, but I want to double-click on it. Any time you pray from a self-righteous attitude, right? if you get into this place of, hey, God, I'm totally righteous down here. I'm one of the good guys. They're the bad guys. Kill all the bad guys. You you missed it. There's got to be in your prayer this kind of shock and awe. I used to be just like them. If you hadn't done a supernatural work of grace and mercy in my life, I'd still be just like them. I can't believe that I'm on this side. I can't believe I'm actually reading the Bible and believing and praying. Thank you for your mercy, God. And I want them to get mercy. But if you're not going to give them mercy as a way to give mercy to the rest of the world, bring your wrath. Does that make sense? You've got to prevent, protect yourself against any type of self-righteousness. And I'll just be honest, guys. If you've been a Christian, you know, for most of your life, 30 plus years or something, it ought to get more and more stamped on your soul how crazy it is that God chose you. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that constantly shocks me about the gospel. That's I can tell I got saved at age seven. Right? So it's like I didn't, you can't commit much big sin before age seven. It's all the sin I've done post-salvation that's shocking to me. God, like you knew I was going to do this, and you still had mercy on me. But there is a danger, as by God's grace, you slowly become conformed more to the image of Christ. Externally, it's more and more easy to compare yourself to the lost and say, oh, I would never act that way. And you've got to be careful. You've got to stay humble. You've got to stay merciful. So, last thought is this, okay? I mean, David, he, what gave him the confidence to pray this way is that whole idea of loving kindness. You know, there's never a place in there where he's like, hey, God, you owe me. So let me give one more illustration that I think will help us. Imagine if you were at, like, the Chick-fil-A play place, and you've got to go back to, like, when your kids were really little. Okay? And... Maybe you kind of notice there's some really big kid on the play place. He looks too big to be on the play place. And he's being a bully to your child. As you go in there, as you open the door, you notice your child's doing some bad stuff too. Your child is like mouthing off to this big bully, you know, saying some terrible stuff. Unfortunately, you're not shocked because you've had experiences like this before. This may or may not be based on a real example. (laughs) In that moment, are you going to say as a good, loving parent, well, buddy, sorry, you made a mess you know, with this teenager out here on the play place. You're just going to have to deal with it. No, I mean, if you, if you see this teenager coming at your little child as a good parent, you're going to step in to protect, right? You're not stepping in to protect because your child has merited your protection. You're stepping in to protect because he's mine. Just the way it works. He's mine. It's not based on merit. It's based on blood. So when the Lord Jesus does show up and answer our prayers, you just got to remember, it's never based on our merit. It's based on the merit of another who shed his blood for me. And because of that, I never can go and pray and proclaim my own merit. God, you owe me this. I can, I can proclaim the promise, right? God, I don't deserve this. I deserve wrath. But you promised me grace in the blood of your son, and I'm coming to cash in on that blessing. You pray that way, guys, it'll solve all the problems and all the mysteries that are hard in this. Okay, And it, most importantly, it'll keep our heart in a bright kind of humble, gracious, protected place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Please give us wisdom. Lord, please give us wisdom beyond our years, beyond our experience, how to pray this way, when to pray this way, uh, why to pray this way. And Lord, protect us from being immature and naive and unrealistic, but also protect us from being arrogant and self-righteous. Lord, give us the heart of Christ that will speak the hard truth with soft love and be quick and ready to forgive his enemies and willing to weep for them when they're destroyed. But God, draw us closer to you, conform us to you. And Lord, may we be the instruments of winning one or two of these people. To yourself. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.